0: If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We are picking back up where we left off last Sunday, last Lord's Day, and we are looking again at the end of Genesis 14. This is that great account of Abraham returning from the defeat of Shedelaomer and those other kings that had taken Sodom and Gomorrah captive, and Lot, most importantly, had taken Lot captive, and Abraham with his 318 men going out to battle, and what seems like an insurmountable odds it seems that by all human calculations abraham should have lost that battle yet he is victorious in that battle and he brings back lot and the kings that were taken captive and we are picking up now in verse 17 of genesis chapter 14 and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 24 genesis 14:17 to 24. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 10, and I think that you're going to find it exceedingly helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me. Before we do, let's go to the Lord again and ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning, that we would depend on him to bless his word to our souls. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have breathed out the scriptures that you have Breathed out every word, and that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete for every good work. We pray, our God, that you would open our minds and our hearts. We pray that you would help us to focus in on what is read and proclaimed. We pray above all things that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God, that you would make us to hear the voice of our great high priest, who offered himself up, and who ever lives to make intercession for us. We pray that we would be drawn to him. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as our great high priest, you would even now intercede for us, and that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word to our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, and now Moses records for us these words. After his return from the defeat of Shedalomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, and that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the King of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the King of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will not take I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me, let Anir, Eshcol, and memory take their share. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I, I'm sure you've experienced it at different points in your life, but I, I have had conversations with people who, in the course of their conversation, start to brag about their lineage. They start to brag about who they've descended from. Um, my wife has never bragged about it, but she is a daughter of the American Revolution. I don't think she cares quite as much as her family cares Um, And I have no idea who I've descended from beyond great-grandparents. I'm sure that they were probably not very important people. And as I've reflected on how people place value on their genealogies and their lineage, and uh, I I happened to just go online to see what Ancestry.com said, and and the main caption on the front of that website right now says, "Um, I never knew that a kid who grew up in Queens was descended from royalty. And you see people... Finding their value and finding whatever they may find to, to lay hold of for their identity based on who they descend from. And and there's something natural about that. There's something there's something natural about having um, a, a lineage and a pedigree to which we can say, My my family has done something, my my family has been something. I have come from someone who has accomplished something. This is a heritage that I'm proud to claim as my own. And as we read in the book of Genesis we see that everyone has a genealogy, that all of the people recorded in this book have these genealogies these very detailed genealogies tracing who they came from and who they fathered and who would come from them and Abraham as we look at the account of Abram here we have seen that he descended from Terah and we have seen that he descended from Shem and we have seen that he descended from Noah and we have seen that he descended through that godly line in Genesis chapter 5 and we see that there is significance In a book of genealogies. In fact, the book of Genesis is really just that. It is a book of genealogies. It is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. The first genealogy in this book tells us exactly where everything came from. And then it is a genealogy of that wicked line, the seed of the serpent, and of the righteous line, the covenant line, those in whom God was working and through whom he would ultimately bring the Redeemer. And so in a book so full of significance about genealogies, it is fascinating to note that the greatest figure in this book doesn't have a genealogy. That he he shows up out of the blue. Abram has come back from defeating Chedorlaomer and he is met by two kings. He is met by the king of Sodom and he is met by this mysterious figure Melchizedek, king of Salem. And what's interesting if we took note of this, we and and we were the first recipients of this book, we might not see all that is going on, all that's at play in the account of Melchizedek and his interaction with Abram and Abram's response to him and Melchizedek's blessing of Abram and proclamation of the blessing of God and Abram's giving this man who mysteriously shows up, who seems to have no father or mother, no beginning of days or end of life, and who we will be told later on in the Bible is the greatest type of the king priest, Jesus. I think we would be tempted to say, what's the point of this? I'm not sure what to make of this. And so we're going to see three things today to help us understand the significance of Melchizedek. For your Christianity, Melchizedek is supremely important. As I was preparing this message, I thought, I wonder how many hundreds of thousands of churches throughout this country would never, ever teach their people about Melchizedek would ever teach them how supremely important this man is. So important, even though he only gets a few verses here in Genesis 14, a thousand years later, he gets his own psalm. And then a thousand years after that, he gets three chapters in the greatest book explaining who Jesus is as the great high priest over his church. That's how important. In fact, you could say you cannot understand your Bibles if you don't understand Melchizedek. You don't understand Christian worship if you don't understand Melchizedek, and you don't understand the Christian life unless you understand Melchizedek. And so we're going to see 3 things this morning. First, we're going to see the mediator of grace. Secondly, we're going to consider the blessing of grace, and finally, we're going to consider the response of the recipient of grace. The mediator, the blessing, and the response of the recipient of grace. Well, notice Abram has come back. He has been met by these two kings. This is something I've actually never noticed before preaching this series, that Abram has two things set before him, just like the book of Genesis sets out the two kingdoms, the two cities, the two seeds everywhere, and it is God's people, and it is the kingdom of Satan. It is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. Abram now is met with a confrontation. He has... Two things set before him. He has the king of Sodom saying, you take everything, all the possessions you've brought us back, take everything. It's all yours, Abram. In a sense, Abram is facing the temptation to become one of the Canaanites. He He is facing the temptation to become the great king in Canaan. If he has all the possessions of those nations that he's brought back, if he is dwelling there with the Canaanites, he is being tempted to settle into the world To forfeit the promises of God, to take whatever's coming to him, and to compromise for the sake of comfort and security and pleasure. But then God, in his kindness, sets another king before Abram. I think that's astonishing that both come to Abram at exactly the same time. And notice that we read, after his return from the defeat of Shedda and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. and verse 18, Melchizedek... King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. Now, this opens for us a number of questions. Did Abram know who Melchizedek was? There are theologians, there are fine theologians who try to say that this was Shem, there are fine theologians who say that this was a pre incarnation of Jesus. We don't know. God doesn't give us any clear indication whatsoever in the text that Abram knew who this was or that he was acquainted to who this person is. We're not told anything about if this is their first interaction or not. I assume that it is. I assume That God instructed Melchizedek, being priest of the Most High God, to go to Abram and to pronounce this blessing on him to minister as a mediator for Abram. Here's the very significant point. As great as Abraham was, as great a man as Abram was, he needed a mediator between he and God. He needed a priest. You know, people, when they pick churches, they want to go for music or children's ministry or people that they like or some other thing. The thing that we need more than anything else is a mediator between God and man. We need a mediator. We need one who stands as a priest between God and man. This is the first time in the scriptures that we read about a priesthood. It is the first reference to a priest. Moses sets this out emphatically as if to say to Israel, who knew well about priesthood after this, you need a priest. You need one who intercedes. You need one who sacrifices. You need one who stands between God and your soul. You need one who can make you acceptable to God, who can mediate God's grace to you. Now, I think we who live on this side of the Reformation with all of our sort of aversion to Roman Catholicism and its right. Actually, I would encourage you to read Kevin DeYoung's most recent post on the, the theological gulf between Roman Catholicism and true Protestantism. If, if you're having a hard time with that, I think that's important. But I think there's a danger that we who so revolt to the idea of a priest standing and, and standing before us in human form, and it's right that we do so, sometimes forget that we need a priest, that we must have a mediator. We know that that mediator is Jesus. Melchizedek is going to be a type of Jesus, and he's going to teach us all about that. But he comes to Abram, and he appears out of the blue, and and we're not sure all the things that go on. But one thing, one thing that strikes me as we read this, and one thing that ought to strike us, is that in the midst of the depravity of the world, in the midst of the idolatry of the world, at this time when everyone was given over— to violence and debauchery and idolatry and they had perverted the worship of God and they had turned away from the promise of redemption and they were trusting in themselves and they were worshiping foreign gods and they were making for themselves gods and no one was walking closely with God. God had his people. I love this quote. Uh, John Calvin reflecting on the fact that here is this great and godly king priest who is dwelling in what would become Jerusalem, who shows up out of the blue at the same time as Abraham, is being called by God, and and God's grace is being worked into Abram. John Calvin says this. He says, God sometimes hid his church underground, so to speak, and that his church is unknown to men's minds, but it is enough that God knows it. You know, we we want... flair we want acceptance we want to know that the church is sophisticated and accepted i actually think a lot of people go to to the biggest church that they can find because it it gives them some sense that we're going to be known and this is going to be acceptable and and actually more often than not god works in the lives of his people by his grace in hidden and unseen ways who knew who knew that outside of abram There was this great and godly king priest who was going to come and bless Abram, who was going to show up out of nowhere, who was himself uh, a king in the midst of a land of idolatry, and yet he was one who was faithful to the Lord, and he was one who would become the greatest type of the Lord Jesus, and he would show that God was working, and God was working. Even when men were not giving credit, even when men were not giving accolades and praise to the church of Jesus, God was at work. I love that. I love that thought that when it doesn't look like God's at work, be assured God is at work. Remember when Elijah was depressed and he started to become self-righteous, he started to think, I'm the only one that's faithful. And and he basically says, just kill me, Lord, because I'm the only one that's faithful. And God says, basically, be quiet. I have 7,000 of have reserved for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God is saying, I have my people. I will use them when and where and in what way I will, even if the world is not taking note of them. But notice that it was necessary for this mediator to come to Abram. I love this idea that the origin of grace and the basis for Abraham's hope lay apart from him and above him. What we're really learning as we look at this is that It wasn't up to Abram. It wasn't the greatness even, let me say this this morning, it wasn't even the greatness of the faith of Abram. He needed God's grace, and God's grace lay above him and apart from him. He needed a sign that it was coming from God to him. We constantly, constantly, constantly need to be reminded of that. I read this week uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and just thinking of my own life and my own heart and my own responses and I love the way that Paul says see, see your calling brethren not many wise not many mighty not many noble are called but the, the things that are despised the things that are not the things that are unlovely the things that are unnoble God has called that no flesh should glory in his presence the point of Melchizedek coming to Abram was to say that whatever Abram has already experienced, whatever his life has already manifested, it is only and ever by the grace of God. That is the entire point of this meeting with this mysterious king of righteousness, Most high, priest of the most high God who came and blessed him. Now, you'll know if you've read your Bible uh, to any extent whatsoever that Melchizedek is referenced in Psalm 110. It is, in fact, the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. The apostles quote and Jesus quotes and cites Psalm 110 more than any other psalm, and specifically several verses out of Psalm 110. That psalm says, and it is a psalm of David, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, 'Sit sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, David speaks of God in two ways. In verse 1, he says, "Uh, Yahweh, the Lord, said to Adonai, my Lord. Now, David's not speaking of himself. David's not speaking of any other individual that he knows on earth. He's speaking of of the triune god. It is a it is a prelude to the unveiling of the trinity. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai the Father says to the Son, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." And the apostles return there again and again and again and again, and that one verse speaking about the Lord Jesus ascending and sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And that verse, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, is the repeated refrain of Christology in the New Testament. It is the most important psalm in the Old Testament. And verse 4 of that psalm, David utters these words. He says, speaking of the father speaking to the son, Yahweh speaking to Adonai, the father saying to the son, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Some 110, 4, a 1, thousand years after we read about this mysterious figure, we hear the Father telling the Son, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, God then waits a thousand years and then gives us the book of Hebrews, which is probably a sermon. And in that, in that great letter of Hebrews, the Lord tells us, that Jesus is a better priest from a better order than Levi who is a king and a priest who reigns forever who offered himself up as the sacrifice for sins once for all and whoever lives to make intercession for his people who is never replaced as priest he is the priest forever he is the eternal priest he had no beginning of days and no end of life and Melchizedek becomes the great type of Jesus as the everlasting priest. Now, you may say one of two things. You may say, I don't get that. Or you may say, this is just too much. Well, the writer of Hebrews actually tells them, you don't get it because you're dull of hearing, and it's hard to explain. So those are the two things we have to grapple with, that these are deep and profound truths. You know, I was, I was reflecting this week on how many pastors I've heard say, um, you know, I saved the deep things, and I would say this is about the deepest we're going to get in the scripture, and we're going to go deeper this morning. But I save the deep things for Sunday school or for other settings. You know, the New Testament letters were written to largely biblically illiterate people in the first century. So it is, it is actually a dishonor to God to say we save the deep things for some other setting than worship, and it's actually a denial of what God is capable of making his people understand by his spirit. God is able to take the deepest and mo- most profound truths and bring them to bear, and God wants this truth to come to bear on our lives. He wants you to say, I need a priest who is like Melchizedek. I need a priest who is an everlasting priest in, in the law, when Moses gives us all of those instructions about the Levitical priesthood, and he explained that one generation would come, and then that priest would pass away, and the next generation would come, and that priest would pass away, and Israel's entire history was a history of saying, I love this priest that God has given me, but then that priest would grow old and he would die and there would be another. And something about the temporariness, something about the passing nature of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices was constantly saying to the people, there has to be a priest who is an everlasting priest. There has to be a sacrifice that is sufficient to atone for my sins for all of eternity, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Now, one of the striking things about Melchizedek because he's a priest this just hit me recently he doesn't come with a sacrifice which should strike us as odd because that's the thing that the priest does that should strike us as odd here is this priest coming to bless Abram Abram himself understands that he needs the sacrifice that God has appointed because he's constantly gone back to the altar in Bethel And he has constantly acknowledged, I need a sacrifice for my sins. And here is the priest. And the priest is appointed to make sacrifice, both for himself and for the sins of the people. This Melchizedek himself would have needed a sacrifice. And yet he comes to Abram and he doesn't bring a sacrifice. He brings bread and wine. Now, there is much debate in church history about whether this was a picture of the sacrament of the lord's supper i think it is i think it clearly is i think that what melchizedek is doing is not just bringing things that are common when you travel bread would keep wine that was a bit watered down would keep and it would make for long journeys i think this is a gospel type that what abram ought to be thinking and i think abram knew was that this one who came to bless him was prefiguring greater redeemer who would be the mediator between God and man who would come with the sacrifice of himself who would give the bread and the wine as the symbol of his broken body and his shed blood and who would essentially be saying I am the priest that you need and all of God's grace comes to you through my saving work and labors and life and person I think Abram probably would have been surprised that this priest came and there's no sacrifice because he knew he needed one but that Abram would have understood that Melchizedek was typifying someone greater. Now, if you've read Hebrews, you know that there is significance to the name of this mediator of grace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. We're told he's priest of the Most High God and that he is king of Salem. Now, Salem means peace. He is king of righteousness and he is king of peace. And you may say, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, the Lord Jesus is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, and yet those things are antithetical to one another. We are unrighteous. And so a king of righteousness doesn't bring us comfort. A king of righteousness strikes terror in our hearts. If we know how unrighteous we are, if we know that God is perfectly righteous and holy, we ought to see that there's a, there's a crisis. We should find a crisis in our thinking— about our relationship to this king but then we're told he's king of peace and we know that we need peace and we want a king of peace there is um the solution to this actually is the cross and um we find this in psalm 85 where the psalmist speaking about the two natures of jesus says uh truth shall spring out of the earth And righteousness shall look down from heaven. That's the human nature and the divine. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. And then he says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Well, where did they kiss? They kiss in the death of Jesus on the cross. The righteousness of God, the justice of God against our sin placed on Jesus the peace of God that comes through the reconciling blood of Jesus. You may say, how do you get that out of Melchizedek? I get it from the rest of the Bible. Melchizedek is king of righteousness, king of peace. He is pointing to the Lord Jesus, who is the great king of righteousness and peace, who satisfies divine justice, who extends peace to his people through his death on the cross. He is also priest of God Most High now. Uh, we have to understand that Melchizedek is supremely important as this mediator of grace because he is the only one in human history that ever held those two offices together. In the Old Testament, uh, you would find a number of different uh, men who held the office of priest and prophet, of prophet and king, but no one was allowed to hold the office of king and priest. It was too much power. It was too much influence. It It was too much for any fallen man to hold those offices. Remember when Saul tried to take the office of priest to himself, when he tried to sacrifice, God stripped the kingdom from him. That's how serious that was. And, and what that was saying was that there, there, there must be another. If Melchizedek could hold those offices, and then those offices were forbidden to be held by any one man in the Old Testament, there must be someone else who comes according to the order of Melchizedek, who, who in himself embodies those offices. And we know that the Lord Jesus is the king of righteousness and the great high priest over the house of God. He is prophet, priest, and king. He's the only man who ever held all of those offices in the Old Testament, and he did it for your salvation. If you don't have a king priest, you don't have salvation. If you don't have a king and a priest, there is no redemption. You know, Zechariah gives a little intimation to this in one of his prophecies where he's talking about the king and the and the priest and he says he says the council of peace shall be between them both that all of God's redemption all of his grace all of his peace all of his salvation only come to us if there is one who holds those two offices together who sits on the throne of God and that is the Lord Jesus now Melchizedek shows us more about the Lord Jesus and his eternality one of the sweet sweet comforts of the New Testament is that Melchizedek seems to have no father or mother because there's no genealogy he shows up out of the blue and he disappears and you never hear about him again in any of his history whatsoever but that that prefigures the one who is from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord Jesus who said, I I am he who lives and I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord Jesus who is the same yesterday, today and forever. And you and I need an eternal priest more than we need anything. Oh, how I wish we would get this. You know, we think we need all kinds of things. Our, our entire life is spent chasing after things we think we need. And there is one thing that we must have, and that is the king priest who has the power of an endless life, who offers up himself for us, who gives us the bread and the wine as symbols of everything that he's done in those offices to redeem us, to say, I am your priest, and I have forgiven you, and I ever lived to make intercession for you, and I have passed through the heavens, and I have entered into the very presence of God for you. I have made a new and living way for you. You know, essentially what Melchizedek is saying to Abraham is, you're accepted. And so secondly, let's consider briefly the the blessing of grace. You know, Melchizedek doesn't just come and bring bread and wine, but he comes with this pronouncement of blessing. Notice verse 19, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek does something wonderful. He first pronounces a blessing over Abraham, the divine blessing. God is behind that, and he's saying to Abram, because Abram has chosen to walk by faith. Abram has looked to the promise and to the God of promise, and God is essentially affirming Abram and saying, you are blessed. Because I am God Most High, I am the possessor of heaven and earth. You didn't take for yourself the possessions of the king of Sodom. You didn't seek for yourself a homeland here. You didn't try to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You didn't give yourself over to worldly pursuits and security and trying to find fulfillment in creation. You have trusted me. You have followed my call. You have set your eyes on a kingdom and a city that has foundations and whose builder and maker I am. And God is saying through Abram, you are blessed. And I want to say this this morning. If you are trusting Jesus, God pronounces that same blessing through the greater high priest, Jesus Christ. And he says to you, you are blessed by God most high. I love when Jesus is ascending. Luke is the only one that captures this. Um, after his death and resurrection, Jesus is ascending to heaven. And, and Luke says the very last thing that he does is he lifts up his hands and he, breath, he blesses them. Jesus gives that priestly blessing. He is the great high priest, and he's essentially saying, blessed are you, my people, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then notice what Melchizedek does. He turns... And he praises God because behind Abram, behind the victory over the kings, behind our Christian lives, behind our faith, behind anything that might be virtuous about you, and there's not much unless you have faith, there's nothing virtuous, behind any of those things is the God of glory and grace. And what, what Melchizedek is essentially doing, he is mediating the blessing to the believer, to Abram, and he is he is tearing back the veil. And he is pulling back that veil and he is essentially in this blessing to God. He is saying to Abram, behind anything that you are is the God possessor of heaven and earth is the most high God who, notice this, has delivered your enemies into your hand. See, Melchizedek is assuring Abram that the victory was not anything that he did, that it was all of grace. Now, we've already seen that. But we need to be reminded of that We need to know that our salvation is all of grace We need to know that whatever we may do That is noteworthy Or that is virtuous Or that is victorious in Christian living Is only by the grace of God And that, that God is the one Who has provided salvation You know A lot of people hate Calvinism Which is just sad Because it's on every page of the Bible and, and I get it John Calvin didn't make it up I get it Um, I usually, whenever I read people um, commenting on blogs or on Facebook and railing into John Calvin, I usually think that's a person that's never read John Calvin. That's my first thought. (laughs) And I know I'm right about that. That's somebody that's never, because John Calvin wrote a lot. That's somebody that's never read Calvin. But, you know, uh, Charles Spurgeon has this great sermon where he is talking about Jonah in the depths of the fish's belly, And and Spurgeon basically says, Jonah prays like a Calvinist. When he repents, he says, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He doesn't say, Lord, I made the right decision to get out of the fish's belly. Lord, look what I did in your name. Look how victorious I was. When he repents, he says, salvation is of the Lord. Melchizedek says, the Lord is blessed who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Any victory over sin, any victory over forces of darkness, any victory in Christian living whatsoever, any victory over the world is only and ever by God's grace in our lives, and it is mediated to us, and it is proclaimed to us, and it is interpreted to us by the greater high priest, Jesus. This is why we need to be in the word. You know, don't expect, I want to say this this morning, don't expect a mysterious figure to show up at your house and do anything like Melchizedek did with Abram. Expect to have that happen to you when you're in the scriptures because that is how God speaks. That's how the great high priest speaks. Read Hebrews. Read Hebrews over and over and over and over again. You can never read Hebrews enough. If you've never read Hebrews, you have read it way too little. You can never read it enough. And what happens is the same thing that God is doing through the mediator of grace with Abram, the same thing he's doing through the blessing of grace on Abram and to God is the same thing he does when we come to the scriptures and we sit at the feet of Jesus and we receive the ministry of the eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, Finally, I want to just fixate as we close this morning on the response of the recipient of grace how do I know how do I know that I have received God's grace how do I know that I'm not like so many other people who hear and the seed falls by the wayside who hear and the seed is trampled who hear and the word is choked out how do I know that I've really received God's grace well notice Abram's response in verse 20 at the the second part of verse 20 Abram gave him a tithe of everything. Now, this is not going to be a you-need-to-give-more sermon. I have no desire to guilt you into giving. But I do want to say this morning that those who have been the recipients of God's saving grace, who have been blessed, and know that in Christ they have received every spiritual blessing and an eternal inheritance, and that God, notice the language, notice the language of Melchizedek, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram has chosen not to take the goods from the king of Sodom. He has in some sense acknowledged he has a better inheritance waiting him. He has acknowledged that there is something better than what the world has to offer and any pursuit that he may run after in this life. He has acknowledged that. He has taken something from Melchizedek. He took bread and wine. He did take something, but he hasn't benefited financially whatsoever from the defeat of the kings. I think this is remarkable. You have one king saying, I'm going to give you everything. You have another king priest saying, here's bread and wine. And you have Abram saying, I want to give more to the Lord. I want to give back. He is is giving a tenth of all that he has. He's not just giving when a big paycheck comes in. He's not just giving when the bills are paid. He's not just giving when he's had a really good year and he can afford to give now. He has actually given up the world, he has received the bread and the wine, and he has given generously back. And in a sense, and, and the writer of Hebrews makes a huge deal about this, because in the Old Testament, whatever you think about tithing, and there are many, many, many people that don't think tithing is for new covenant believers. But this much we can be assured of. It is the standard, typical, and evidentiary response of one who has received God's grace to give back to the Lord out of gratitude for what the Lord has given them. It is the, it is the normal, standard way. And in fact, this is remarkable, because in the Mosaic Law... Uh, the, the priest received the tithes and the offerings they were given to them, whether it be money or whether it be wine or whether it be the, the eat, being able to eat of the sacrifices or the grain offerings or whatever else God had commanded his people. And, and by the way, it amounted to about 30-40% of their yearly income, not 10%. We want to go as low as we can, and I just want to, I want to blow that out of here. That's just bad. If we're thinking, what's the least I need to give the Lord? That is very bad. That is actually a mark of a heart that's not in a healthy place. Um, And mine's been there. And I'm sure yours have, have been there. But Abram gives back joyfully because he acknowledges that his heart is free from the love of the world. He acknowledges that he has redemption. He acknowledges that the blessing of God is greater than all the possessions of this life. And he gives back. And in a sense, he's giving to Christ. And in a sense, the entire Levitical priesthood who would come from him, who would themselves receive the tithes, are giving back to the Lord Jesus by Abram giving to Melchizedek, who is the type of Christ. And what is being taught here? is that if we have been the recipients of God's grace, we're going to give back for the glory of God, acknowledging that the Lord Jesus is the one who's blessed us. You know, I want to just close with this thought this morning. I think this means much more than just financial giving, though I think it means that. I think it means giving service to the lord jesus in using your gifts in giving of your time and opening your homes and using your possessions to minister to others that have need and thinking about how to bless others for the glory of christ you know travis prayed in the prayer of confession this morning and asked the lord to forgive us for even those times that we serve him begrudgingly with sort of a servile bitter complaining spirit i do it i know you do it it's human nature we can learn this morning from Abram. If you are in Jesus Christ, if he has laid down his life for you, if he has brought the sacrifice of himself for you, if he has brought the bread and the wine of the forgiveness of sins and the fellowship that he has, he has merited for you, we ought to respond by joyfully entering into a response of giving, time, money, money, laborers, our homes, instead of demanding, instead of complaining, one of the remarkable things about this, it's the, it's the first time that tithing is mentioned in the Bible, and it's, it's almost just this passing, and Abram gave him a tenth, almost this just, it doesn't feel begrudging, it's no complaint, it was the natural response, the natural response to receiving God's grace in Jesus is to respond by giving back to him out of gratitude, he doesn't need it, I want to say this this morning. Jesus certainly doesn't need your money. He holds your breath in his hand and owns all your way. So he doesn't need your money, but he, he invites you to respond by giving yourself, your time, your energy, your labors, your possessions, back to him joyfully. He does that because he is the priest who is bringing us to glory and is going to confer on us an everlasting inheritance. Um, I want to ask you this morning, as you go through your life, as you go through your days, do you ever stop and think, am I living in communion with God through the mediator who is the great high priest of my soul? Do you ever stop and, and think, the thing I need more than anything this morning is to know that my high priest is with me and that I have access to God through him and that I have fellowship him? with God in him. Do you ever stop and do that? Um, I want to challenge you this morning to let that be a daily part of your Christian experience, that you would meditate on Melchizedek, that you would then meditate on Jesus Christ, the priest with the endless life who laid down his life for us and took it again. Let's meditate on that together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have done everything for us in the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the greater Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and the priest of the Most High God who has blessed us, who has brought the sacrifice of yourself into this world and laid down your life for us on the cross and taken it again. And whoever lived to make intercession for us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would mediate for us this morning and that you would make us a people who understand the blessing of grace and who respond as recipients of grace. And so as we come to partake of the bread and the wine now, we pray, our oh God, that you would prepare our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.